I'm going to aim to cover three um, central socialist arguments regarding war uh, today, since the talk is about war and revolution. Um, the first uh, statement is that war is bad, actually. Um, the second is that war is not a reflection of human nature, but is actually a reflection of um, class society. And the third is that war can be stopped by the activity of ordinary people. It's not inevitable. Um, and we're going to discuss a little bit about how um, we can do that. Um, as Marxists, we understand the drive to war as coming out of um, uh, class society. So if we're talking historically, class society is when um, <clears throat> is, is any form of society where uh, the population as a whole is bifurcated at least into um, some kind of oppressor class and some kind of laboring class that does all, does all the work. Uh, feudalism was an example of this. Uh, capitalism, which we live under today, is another, uh, another example of this. Um, in general, um, class society creates the impetus for war because it uh, it includes the notion of uh, private property, right? the notion that the ruling class or individuals in the ruling class hold on to, hold on to property, um, have an interest in passing it down, have an interest in retaining it for the purposes of production. Uh, further, class society, for the very same reason, also involves the creation of a state to govern the extraction of labor and also the creation of uh, what Marx called arms bo armed bodies of men, in our language today, uh, soldiers and police. Um, <clears throat> And it is the and, and these and these people form the, uh, the the basis of the legitimacy of any uh, state in a class society. If all else fails, it's their job to violently, if necessary, enforce the will um, <coughs> of the ruling class. And in the very same way that they can violently enforce their will on um, that state's own subjects, they may also violently enforce its will on another um, state. Um, under capitalism, which is a particular form of class society, um, you get a few extra details tack tacked onto this. Um, because we're talking about a situation where, uh, where the economy is driven by a market, there's supposed to be free comp competition between capitalist firms. And under capitalism, what tends to happen is that firms begin to grow and grow and grow over time, and they will grow to a size when they begin to play a decisive role in uh, their respective uh, national economies, and indeed they will begin trading with each other um, across borders, and so their operations will also spill across um, <clears throat> national borders. And that means that if companies in a particular country are trading and operating across borders, then the states it, to which those firms belong will also uh, begin to concern themselves with relationships across um, uh, borders. So competition between these firms um, engenders competition between their respective um, nation, nation states. And what ends up happening if the firms become large enough, in today's language, too big to fail, um, is that the nation states will begin to take an interest in using uh, their armed bodies of men, their soldiers uh, and, their, and their police, to ensure the conditions for their respective firms to continue to profit uh, remain in place. Right? Um, so this might take the form of, for example, seizing resources and trade routes, uh, denying them to other nation states, or direct confrontation with a rival if it um, if it comes to that. So what we have is capitalists, capitalists uh, coming to rely on the state to provide the military and industrial base for them to continue um, expanding and to secure uh, markets um, for, for, for their use. And the final thing is that since we're talking about a system of competition between um, nation states, between, between countries, um, this, is a, this is a system that is always in flux, right? Uh, the economic and industrial power of nation states waxes and wanes, it goes up and, up and down. And anytime you have a situation where uh, one industrial power is on the rise and another is on the, is on the decline, then uh, they'll be looking to respectively defend and change the current um, 
uh, distribution of power, distribution of power in the world, and that's when you get any, an even elevated risk of um, imperial conflict between those um, be between those states. And that, in a nutshell, is um, <clears throat> the uh, the, the, the theory of imperialism at war that um, we, we socialists uh, uh, sub sub subscribe to. And this is outlined by uh, the Russian uh, revolutionaries, uh, Vladimir Lenin and uh, Bukharin, uh, who both wrote about this in the heat of um, the Russian Revolution, stating two basic principles, that imperialism is a global system. It's a global system that draws capitalist states into conflict, which, means, which is to say it's not simply a case of what we might learn in school where big country bullies small country, but rather um, states in conflict with each, uh, with each other, deploying their uh, political, their economic, military power to, um, to ensure that their respective um, capitalists can continue uh, to profit. All right. Um, so that covers my that covers my second second point. Right. War is not some outcome of uh, humans being inherently greedy or failing to learn, learn the lessons of history. It comes from our. Um, it comes from class society, it comes from the economic system, system we live under. Because it must accumulate and because competition has to happen, states are repeatedly forced into uh, conflict with each other, even when it would appear that it is against their interests. You often hear people making the argument, for example, that a war with China is surely impossible because they're our major trading partner. Why would we ever go to, wa go to war with them? Um, and even uh, the political pundits and the uh, generals have trouble answering this question because um, it's not that it's not that they're necess necess necessarily intentionally planning to go 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 to war on X Y and Z day, but you see, uh, because of this competition, they're constantly making plans just in case, preparing, arming themselves to the teeth, and that increases um, the risk of a war taking place. All right. The second one I want to cover. The second point I want to cover quite quickly is the first one I mentioned uh, that war is in fact bad. Um, <clears throat> so, and this is this will be a continuation of some points that. Um, uh, Griff raised in his talk in the in, in, in the in the previous session, but I just want to explicitly um, outline that uh, not because I think that anyone in this room necessarily needs convincing, but we are dealing with um, <clears throat> people outside who may not have considered the full ramifications of what a war under capitalism looks like. Even before a war breaks out, uh, what uh, the military build up to war um, under a capitalist system uh, means uh, first the driving through of uh, nationalism and militarism on a, on, a, on a massive scale, right? And we can drop in examples that we can see today. So, for example, um, there's the racism that you get against um, Chinese migrants and Chinese students. Uh, there's word that we've heard stories in Melbourne, for example, that Deakin University is refusing to enroll Russian students on the basis that um, they're all conspirators in the war against um, in, uh, on, on the war in Ukraine. So that sort of ugly uh, racism, nationalism, and militarism gets driven through into society. And it's all used to divide the working class. It's all used to divide um, workers against each other. Uh, you get a massive waste of money and human resources. Imagine all the dollars, all the time, all the energy, all the human talent, uh, which could have been used to better society in some way. Aerospace engineers who could be out there building the next uh, super efficient planes, super efficient, efficient trains, instead uh, spending their time building missiles, building more efficient ways for us to kill people. Um, and of course, that culminates in um, arms races, which we're seeing now with AUKUS. Uh, we're getting nuclear submarines, and now the South Koreans want nuclear submarines, the Japanese want nuclear submarines, and everyone else in the region is saying, please don't do it because we thought this would happen. Um, <clears throat> the, the arms races are an inevitable part of this drive uh, to competition. That's all before the war happens. If a war does break out, you got the usual list, right? Massive bloodshed, economic chaos, privation for the masses, right? We're deprived of all our cons consumer goods, crackdown on civil liberties as um, our government, which 
claims to be fighting in the name of democracy starts telling us that you're not allowed to campaign against the war uh, because that's helping um, Xi Jinping. Refugees displaced en masse. Um, even when a military victory is won, um, that situation is temporary. You can imagine, for example, if uh, the, the war in Ukraine was resolved tomorrow militarily, would that mean peace for Eastern Europe? Absolutely not. The place has been militarized to hell. It's only a, a matter of time before the next uh, spark sets off uh, the next war. Uh, and this, the, here's, here's, here's a key point with uh, military alliances, which are a natural uh, part of um, uh, countries competing with each other in, in this, um, in the, in this capitalist, capitalist system. They'll seek to form alliances with each other, um, notionally to secure, to, to secure themselves, right? So they're thinking, okay, if I'm friends with this big um, military power, perhaps if anyone tries to declare war on me, they will protect me. What this in fact does, and I'll illustrate this with the example of World War I later, is that what starts as a conflict between two countries immediately begins dragging in more and more and more, in particular um, the powerful countries uh, today, the ones armed with nuclear weapons, right? So <clears throat> the military alliances that tend to spread war instead of uh, restrain it. Restrain it. Uh, there's environmental devastation. Um, the US military, if it were to be considered its own country, uh, would be the 47th largest emitter above in, in the world. It would emit as much carbon as the entire nation of Portugal. Right? Um, and yep, the entire regions, uh, if, if, if a war happens, we pound it into ruin. We're talking about if there's a war over the, nas the, the national security or uh, self-determination of Taiwan, that Taiwan itself would become the battleground and the island would be reduced to rubble. And if that um, isn't enough, there is, of course, the looming possibility that we'll all die in nuclear fire, uh, that if, um, if the imperial powers can't um, stop themselves. So um, I hope I've convincingly demonstrated point number one. War is bad, actually, right? And um, we, need to we, we, we want to stress this point to anyone who, um, who, who, who has any hang-ups about, oh, maybe if we only had conventional subs, if we had some other sort of defense arrangement, um, <clears throat> that... Uh, that thing, the things will be fine. Um, lastly, I want to cover the point about uh, war being stopped by the or by, by the activity of ordinary people. And I'm going to start this this year point with a bit of a with, with a bit of a poll. Uh, solidarity, comrades, you're not allowed to participate. You guys are cheating. You know the answers. Spoiler alert. Okay, right. Okay. So rest of you, who remembers from school uh, how World War One started? Hands up if you remember. Roughly. Okay, it's not quite the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> okay. Huh? Sorry? Franz Ferdinand, yes. Some guy, some guy, some guy shot the Archduke, right? And then S Serbia declared war on Austria, or Austria-Hungary declared, declared war on Serbia, and then Russia declared war on Austria-Hungary, and blah, 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 right? Okay, we, we, remember, we remember that story. Who remembers how the war ended? Um, as a general observation, that is not often taught in schools because the answer to this question is actually quite dangerous. Right? <laughs> so here's, here's what happened in World War I. So obviously you had a very tense um, situation in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, in this particular case, we were, we were talking earlier about an industrial power on the rise and an industrial power on the decline. In this case, the industrial power on the decline was uh, the UK, right? Uh, Britannia, ruler of the seas, upon which the, the sun never sets on the British Empire, right? And the, the Germans were the ascendant um, in, in industrial power. Lots of new science, lots of new industrial processes being in, de developed in Ger Germany, and they're arming themselves to the teeth because they're looking at all their neighbors who have accumulated all these colonial possessions from the, from the previous century, and they're saying, why don't we have any, 
and any colonies, and they're looking to snatch, and they're looking to snatch some, right? And it so happens that in this context, where you know there are lots of false starts to a war that don't actually don't actually pan out, but everyone has armed themselves to the teeth, and everyone has a military alliance. It is that spark, uh, uh, the assassination of the, friend, of, of the archduke, that ends up setting off um, uh, the 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 entire the entire chain. So a graphic illustration of military alliances actually dooming the entire continent uh, to years of bloody um, <coughs> trench warfare. The way that the war ends up stopping years and years later um, is instead uh, the product of revolutionary activity from, uh, from workers. So you all recall that um, World War I ended in 1918 and a very significant world, world event happened in the year before that, right? Uh, Russia had two revolutions, one in February to overthrow the Tsar and a second one in October uh, to overthrow the provisional government and install uh, the Bolsheviks uh, and, and the Soviets um, as the ruling organs of, uh, of Russia. And what happened, when, one of the things they did when, they, when, when the Bolsheviks came to power uh, was that they signed the Treaty of uh, Brest-Litovsk, which was a unilateral withdrawal of Russia from uh, the war. And you can imagine at the time, uh, that this was not a particularly popular decision, right? So people will be saying, you know, why are we, why are we withdrawing from the war? Germany's going to destroy us if we, if, if we do that. And if we withdraw from the war uh, and we're not fighting on the Eastern Front anymore, Germany will just redeploy its troops over to the French and British sides and we're going to be dooming them, which is exactly which is exactly what happened. That was the, exactly the argument that, we, that, we, that was deployed against uh, people who were for this armistice and our armistice, and we can hear some similarities to you know uh, what the peace movement is arguing for uh, today, but what ends up happening is that by showing uh, the rest of continental Europe what could be done uh, by a mass uh, workers' revolt, overthrowing uh, the the ruling class responsible for prosecuting the war, the re the revolution ends up spreading into the trenches, right? So in the end, uh, there's there's mass desertions occurring in uh, in all the major armies, in particular in the British and German armies, and in Ger and in, in the Germans' case, the desertions become so serious that the German army, uh, partway through 1918, loses the ability to prosecute the war. Uh, completely. And under these conditions, the Kaiser, the king in, in Germany, is forced to sign an armistice and he, and he withdraws and he's eventually, and he's removed shortly afterwards to be replaced by an elected um, head of state. There's a whole other story past that. It involves Rosa Luxemburg, right? Uh, but the point, the point is, is that World War I was ended by revolutionary activity. This sort of seemingly pie-in-the-sky argument that we socialists make about, oh, if we all uh, form alliances between the working classes across borders, uh, if we stop work to stop the war, if we stop the production chain, if we convince the soldiers to refuse to fight, that the war will just stop. Right? People tell us that this is a pie-in-the-sky argument, but that is exactly what happened uh, in, 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 in World War I. So I'm running up on 15, uh, 15 minutes, so I'm just going to conclude with um, the sorts of points that we want to get out of um, a, a basic socialist understanding of how war um, operates and how revolution uh, plays into it. The conclusions that we draw are that uh, the main enemy is at home. We will never side with one imperialism against another because that ends up simply subs uh, subsuming uh, the goals of a revolutionary movement to the goals of that um, uh, imperial power. Instead, our key is always solidarity with workers of other nations. We want to start, revo start revolutions to stop the war, physically prevent the war itself from being prosecuted so that, so that our ruling classes are deprived of weapons, deprived of money, deprived of soldiers, and to show workers in the enemy nations that the very same can, can be done, that the, word can, that the war can, in fact, just end. We can stop work to stop the war. Uh, today, that means we say neither east or west. We don't pick a lesser evil um, in the side between uh, the west on one side and uh, China and Russia 
<clears throat> on the other, we oppose all militarism, including weapon shipments and funding, which is not something that can be uh, consistently said for, um, for, 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 for every single leftist group. We're for any and all struggle which weakens uh, the, the, imperial, the imperial bullies. Uh, we believe that a revolution is possible, that it can stop the war, that we can't break away the foot soldiers and cause mass uh, mutinies and desert, desertions in that, in, that, in that kind of a case. And our ultimate goal is that we want to turn any imperialist, any imperialist war that happens into a civil war or class war, a war between uh, two warring nations should instead be a war of the working class against its ruling class who are the butchers who sent them in to die in the war in the first place. Right? So those are the uh, conclusions that we, uh, that, that we draw out of, out of the theory. If that sounds good to you and you want to help us stop the war that may or may not be about to happen with China, you should join Sol Solidarity, pick up a membership form, come talk to us. <laughs>
So we're, we're trying to combat nationalism every time we, uh, we, we, fight, we fight the drive to war. We start with the intrinsic sense that people have about the cost of the war, the stuff that people have noticed around the announcement of the cost of uh, AUKUS, for example. But then we go on to the politics. It's not simply that the war is going to cost you, uh, cost you money. It's that the war will cost you your ability to fight the, uh, to, to fight the ruling class. Left of center governments, left of center states are not immune to this because of the pressures of ruling, because of what uh, them being in a state constitutes. If they're in a state, that means they're responsible for making uh, capitalism run smoothly, right? So they got a job to do. They got, if, 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 if a provocation to war happens, um, uh, they, 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 they will go along with it. But our counter to this is that wars have not once brought democracy to a country. It hasn't happened once. Like you can go, you can go, go through the laundry list of every time America said we're going to bring democracy to this place by invading it. It's never, it's 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 never, uh, it's never worked. It usually ends up in a <clears throat> in a dictatorship. So I'm just going to finish off with what practically, um, like, in in the in the here and now, um, we're we're aiming for in terms of. Uh, fight, fight, fighting the drive, drive to war. The, f the facilities and the infrastructure that are required to prosecute a war, uh, to uh, manufacture consent for a war, are everywhere in our, <coughs> in, in our society. And we want to be looking for opportunities wherever we are, uh, whether it's in schools, in universities, in workplaces, wherever, uh, to, to sort of strike against it. It looks like uh, dock workers refusing to load ships that have weapons on them. It looks like students shutting down uh, wep weapons research that's happening on their campuses. Um, and in a more extreme case, it looks like organized resistance, resistance to any con sort of conscri conscription drive, sabotage of the con uh, con conscription uh, of, the of the conscription drive, and repeated, sustained, consistent entreaties to workers on the other side of, of the war. We are your allies. We are not trying to kill you. We're going to try and stop the war here, and you do your best to try and stop the war there. And if we get, if we get lucky and we do our or organizing right and we build mass um, resistance against the drive to war, we don't have to die in the trenches because our bosses, bosses tell, tell you to, and we can send them to the wall instead. Mm -hmm.